After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Neil Allen and Annie Lamott. Neil is a coach and writer who studies and practices traditional and contemporary spiritual paths. His private coaching practice blends standard psychodynamics with spirituality methods. In January of 2021, Neil released the book, Shapes of Truth, Discover God Inside You, which explores a set of 35 divine objects hidden inside of everyone that represent aspects of God. Also joining us today is Annie Lamott. Annie is the New York Times bestselling author of 19 books, including collections of essays, novels, and long-form nonfiction, including classic writing manual, Bird by Bird, and child-rearing memoir, Operating Instructions. She's a past recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and an inductee to the California Hall of Fame. And for those who might not know, Neil and Annie were married in 2019. Welcome to the Meta Hour, both of you. Thank you. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. It's such a treat to talk to both of you. And Neil, congratulations on the book. It's uh, such an intense and strange time to be bringing a book into the world. And uh, how has that been and how does it feel to get it out there? Well, I guess it would be appropriate to bring out an intense and strange book. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm glad that it's out there. the 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 joy of a book is in writing the book. Um, the pain of a book is in publishing a book. But <laughs> while that is all true, um, I've gotten to uh, talk to people like you uh, on podcasts, and that has actually been possibly the most rewarding part of publishing um, because in talking about the book, I get to uh, find myself in the middle of the divine. So it's kind of like meditating or listening to a Dharma talk. Just by it being the subject matter, I get to be soaked in the feeling and the sense of uh, being inside the divine. And since the mm -hmm. book's about the divine, every time I talk about it, I get to have that feeling again. Mm. The book feels like a, a really unique entry point into 
both humanness and also the universal struggles we encounter as people. So I'm so curious, where did you first encounter these teachings of the 35 qualities and how was it when you first encountered them? I lucked into being introduced to a mystery school in Berkeley that is the brainchild and the laboratory and the school designed by a guy named Hamid Ali, who writes prolifically under the pen name A.H. Almas, who's a true spiritual master. And I think of him as kind of the William James of spirituality, where William James described all the varieties of religious experience in the world. And what Hamid's enterprise has been is to describe all the experiences of spirituality in the world. So he's kind of over time, cataloged a huge number of experiences uh, ranging from shamanism through Hinduism, through Sufi, through Sufism, through Buddhism, through other more obscure forms of spirituality and found the commonalities in them and done this oddly enough through a very personal exploration that's a kind of daily exploration that stops the world for a moment and says, what is here? He's always asking him, what's next about what is here? But always dropping into the very immediate present to start his explorations. And along the way, he noticed a few things that other people haven't noticed very much over the centuries, probably. And he started to, back 40 years ago, started to kind of formulate a kind of sense of what a progressive path towards self-realization would be. And I lucked into this and spent, oh, over the course of 10 years, I was in and out, but I spent probably six or seven years doing twice a year, eight-day retreats with Hamid and his um, trained teachers, uh, giving twice-daily Dharma talks. And then more importantly, giving us these tools to move into spirituality, not through uh, the experience of our mind interpreting how the world might be in its reality or how we might know the world in its reality, but instead bringing me directly into uh, all three centers at once, mind, body, and heart, and having kind of what turned out to be relatively simple but spectacular experiences of knowing the divine, not as an ineffable, I wonder what it is presence in the world, but as a sensed feeling as much as anything else. Now, I can remember meeting Hamid, it must have been 20 years ago, something like that. And there were a number of people who are on staff at the Insight Meditation Society, which is next door to where I am right now, my house in Barry. And as they left staff, they ended up studying with Hamid. And, and one of the first things I saw, which was kind of very glaring, was this was not a minor commitment. You know, he was asking people for a very full-on presence in a way that was kind of unusual, you know, like people were really um, showing up in like a lot of intensity, you know, in their seeking. And now looking back, I also think how prescient he was in terms of things like the body and trauma and lingering effects within sort of the body or the energy body or, uh, or both. And, and how, 
kind of groundbreaking that is now, you know, let alone 20 years ago. So he was both, I think, in uh, his presentation, something very classical in, in that wholehearted commitment and something kind of wildly innovative all at the same time. Yeah. One thing that he brought to, I think, brought as deeply as any single person has into spiritual practice is the capacity for ordinary, modern, contemporary psychodynamic work to be used as uh, an aid to the removal of the obstacles of the ego. And so he took a very kind of a standard chapter out of the standard model for psychologists nowadays called object relations theory and noticed that by employing some of the tools of object relations theory, he could in a certain way reverse engineer the defensive filters that in our development we added to our life. And for me, I don't think this is true for Hamid, but for me, removing defensive filters is all of the work. Mm-hmm. That for me, there's no work in visualizing uh, a nirvana or imagining what could be. If I remove my defensive filters successfully, a kind of blessed world invades me. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to look for the blessed world. I mm-hmm. just have to look for where my defenses are getting in the way of the blessed world. And then he provides very practical tools for, I think, probably the most efficient set of tools that I've ever seen for removing those obstacles of the ego, one by one by one. He kind of separates them out into these 35 different rooms, and you go room by room by room by room, working through your obstacles. That's actually very Buddhist of you in many ways, you know, that perspective, because if that potential for, as you beautifully said, that blessed realm, let's say, is innate, then we don't have to fuss about it. You know, it's there, but it's obscured, it's hidden, it's hard to find, maybe it's hard to trust. And so that's what we deal with is those obscurations. And it's not through our, you know, strategy or machinations that this other way of being appears since it's innate. So I I completely resonate with that. Yeah, and it, I mean, the obscurations are no different from the attachments or identities that mm-hmm. Gautama Buddha talked about. And it's fascinating in looking at the, the older Pali canon to look at how Buddha very cleanly and efficiently um, describes the process of experiencing the world as a series of steps, you know, and it looks very modern. It looks like, well, you start with your sensory apparatus and then you move through these various steps. And he just noticed this brilliant thing, which is everything's fine until all of a sudden there's this step called attachment. And that step is where everything blows up. And Mm -hmm. if you can get past that step and keep going, you're always going to be fine. Mm. Nice. And Annie, you wrote the forward for the book, and you describe uh, in that what sounds like pretty unusual first date with Neil when he was already in the process of writing the book. And can you tell us that story? Well, is it okay if I just read it? It's not sure. long. Yeah. It was an unusual first date. And 
I had arrived for our first date for coffee, having, I'd had a, a helper, an assistant who I really loved, who helped us with our grandchild, Jax, who was little at the time. And uh, and she was always late. And I just don't do late with people. It's <laughs> And I had mentioned maybe five times over six months that she needed to be really on time. And she just wouldn't be and couldn't be. And so I'd had to let her go because I practice radical self-care. And that means not being with people who are sort of dangerous to my sense of of serenity. And so I felt terrible, although I knew it was the right thing and I'd really prayed about it. And I made it really work for her, but I showed up for the date feeling uh, sort of guilty and and, um, distressed, let's say. So after our second cup of coffee, we got down to the books we were each reading. His was called Shapes of Truth. Oh, I asked prettily, what is it about? Let me show you, he offered, and began to walk me through the process that he describes in the book. He told me to think about my difficulty that morning with my assistant. I closed my eyes to begin the interior visualization. He asked if I felt anything distinctive in my torso, and if so, where was it? I described a cramped feeling in my lower belly, anxiety I had over firing my assistant. Neil asked me to describe the exact size of the area of tension, the shape of the area, its density, and its color. It was an ugly stain, a spilled liquid, grayish-brown, the density of mercury. He asked me to stay with it for a minute. I desperately wanted to run, but I sat quietly, partly because he was so handsome, but also because my stomach felt terrible and maybe this would help. Then I noticed the strangest thing, that the gray-brown liquid was floating in an empty space, as if some of my internal organs had been pushed aside and had left behind a pristine staging area. After a while, he asked if the thing in my belly was changing in any way. Well, not fast enough, I can tell you that. But in fact, it had changed slightly and continued to, becoming wider and less dense, less like mercury. Then, after some time, it rose higher, eventually reaching my chest, much airier now, and then slowly rose up my throat and into the air beside me where it disappeared. In its place, I noticed a white balloon. An icky, thick, grayish-brown blob had transformed through attention into a white balloon, hovering beside me and then magically inside me, too. Ah, Neil said, smiling, you went straight to the pearl. The pearl, I asked. Yeah, he said, the pearl, that white balloon is kind of like looking straight at your own soul, or at least part of it, as if you can see both your own divinity and your ability to function in the world from your divinity. Neil's little parlor trick, as he called it, took me from my familiar self as an anxious, cranky adult full of self-doubt and blame to my own patch of the sacred in about 10 minutes. So, yeah, I wanted to go out with him again. (laughs) (laughs) And so the story evolved and then you got married. How beautiful. Uh It is an unusual first date. Mm -hmm. How did you end up having coffee together? Like how... Did you have mutual uh, friends? Or? Well, the rest, uh, no, we met on this site that's part of Match for Old People called Our Time. 
and we had just really, really liked and kind of grokked each other's profiles. And little by little, although I'm reluctant and antisocial and very odd, we did. <laughs> end, I did end up at some point agreeing to have a <laughs> cup of coffee with him. And we've seen each other every single day ever since for five years. On wow. uh, this weekend, we celebrate five years since that date. Well, it was a close call. It was a close call. Annie rejected me first. We have different opinions for why she rejected me. <laughs> I, I became very defensive when I got a second chance and just thought that she rejected me for not being Jesus-y enough. And so sent her a very long email about my relationship with Jesus, which she found annoying, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Now, also, he said in his profile he was allergic to cats. And I've always said that cats and dogs are the closest we're ever going to know to the divine love of God on this side of eternity. And so if he was allergic and my life centers around my animals, I thought I'd never be able to have him over to my house. And I don't like to be at other people's houses. So maybe it was kind of a combination, a mixed grill of the two. But I don't care how Jesus-y somebody is. I knew he was very spiritual. I knew he was a seeker. And I knew he was very, very involved in the search for truth about reality and, and God and divine love, which are all synonyms. So we did go back for a second coffee at the same place. And the rest is history. It's fantastic. And the, so trick to live, the trick to being allergic and living with cats is put a teaspoon of brewer's yeast into the kibble. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going to ask, is this marriage made possible by pharmaceuticals? Or yes, and well, also Claritin, yes. Yeah, <laughs> too great. So uh, back to the book, Neil, of the 35 forms that you teach in the book, there are five initial qualities that are considered more fundamental, joy, strength, will, compassion, and power, which also share roots in the Sufi tradition. Can you say something about that? Yeah. So you've got 35 rooms of difficulties that may get in the way of your living a free life. And everybody's got all 35, presumably, but five are so distinctive because they basically are simplest sense of ourselves as functioning in the world. So uh, curiosity or joy is how we start every experience. Every experience that I have, whether it's a big project or having a thought that it forms a full sentence or picking up a fork, Every experience begins with stopping, looking around, picking out the variables, and that's called curiosity. It's also got a feeling to it, which if you see it in its pure sense, it feels effervescent and bubbly. And our word joy, oddly enough, is a direct and exact synonym for curiosity. We think joy is in the getting of things or the seeing of things in some kind of dramatic fashion when it's actually just our love for picking out our next variables to be interested in. The second thing that we need in order to lead a functioning life once we've picked the variables is we need to be able to 
solve the puzzle we have given ourselves. So we need to be able to figure out how the variables fit together that we're now interested in for either the next thought that we're having or the big project that we're having. And that's called strength or discrimination. They're the same thing. We think of strength as kind of barbells and being strong. But if you think about it, most of your strength and your ability to function in the world strongly and independently is based on your ability to accurately discriminate things from each other and see what their valences are and see how they fit together. And then the third thing that you need to function in the world is will or steadfastness. You need to be able to not only know that you can do something, but be willing to put in the effort to do it and bring it to a conclusion. And then when you brought it to a conclusion, you either land in a truth or you land in love, right? Um, they, they overlap, they pervade each other, but in a way you can always kind of separate reality into I am an observer looking at the world and parsing it out and that's kind of truth, or I am a, a participant in the world relating to things and particularly relating to individuals, and that's uh, love. As I relate to individuals, we don't notice it, but we're a complaining species. Most of conversation, most TV, most novels most are about our suffering. And most of gossip, we're talking about our suffering. It's hideously difficult to live in an industrialized civilization. And all of our joking around is an appreciation of the absurdity of how hard our life is. And, and so love most commonly appears to us in its guise as compassion, which simply means the love that arises in the presence of suffering, my own or someone else's. That's all compassion is. It's just, oh, you too. And then uh, if I'm in truth, it's kind of, it's got a sense of knowledge and knowingness and all of that kind of stuff. But what truth really gives me is a, is, a, is a view into the perfection of the world seen as powerful, awesome. It's, the, it's, you know, it's, it's standing on top of a hillside that looks over the sea and just being enraptured, right? That's where we go when we go the farthest with truth. And it's also got a, a kind of quietude to it, a kind of peacefulness to it. So these are the five basic components of human experience, curiosity, moving into strength, moving into steadfastness, and resulting in love and truth. So these five, when I was in the mystery school that Hamid has built, it's called the Ridwan School or Diamond Heart. There are about 5,000 people who go through it. It's a progressive path toward self-realization that when people are disciplined with it and have come into it, luckily, and it's the path that's actually meeting them. You never know until you're on a path whether it's the path that's truly meeting you. And if you luck out and it's the path that meets you, as it did with me, it typically takes about seven years to mm -hmm. move through this path and feel fairly free in your life. In one way or another, a lot of people after about seven years feel fairly free. This is where you start. You start with 
discovering what gets in the way of my curiosity. What, what, do, what limits do I put on my curiosity? What gets in the way of my strength? What limits my sense of my ability to discriminate the world and be allowed to on my own with my own mind and heart? What gets in the way of my steadfastness? Everybody thinks they procrastinate and everybody thinks they're a procrastinator. Are you really a procrastinator or are you actually doing far too many things and you get almost everything done? Are you really not steadfast or do you just stop yourself over and over telling yourself that you're not steadfast and you need more will and you have to find it? Or do you actually have it inside you? If you can find it inside you, it can really free you up to live your life well. If you're constantly thinking, I don't have very good willpower like this guy over there or this woman over there, then you're going to be in a state of anxiety that's going to limit your choices. And so these five, uh, the program, the Ridwan program spends really the first year or two going over and over and over and over because they're the most likely obstacles to freedom in, in a typical human being. I love those time frames. I mean, seven years, you know, a year or two, because it can seem daunting, but um, it's real. And this is partly what I meant when I said people were asked for a very wholehearted exploration. You know, it's not like dogma or, you know, something like uh, for the rest of your life, you need to believe these things. It's really bringing that kind of curiosity and investigation very fully, you know, for more than a nanosecond, which is, is more what we'd like, I think, you know, like an hour and a half and you'll be done. And it's, it's just not that way. So bravo. Yeah. Well, and it's lovely because it's got its own built-in reward system. So when you clean up one room, for me, I actually had the visual sensation of curtains parting. Uh, the curtains part in that room and a little bit of the divine becomes integrated or known or seen or just seen at first, right? Wow, look at that. And then the next, and then you work on the next defensive system. And when you kind of move through that defensive system, all of a sudden a little more opens up and a little more opens up. And so um, it isn't like work, 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 bang, nirvana. Right. <laughs> you know, it's work a little bit of heaven, work a little more of heaven, work a little more of heaven. And so it becomes self-amplifying. Retreat mates and I would just be like champing at the bit for the next retreat to do this terrible tortured work. I mean, it's the work <laughs> itself is you're just torturing yourself, right? You're just going, uh, uh, tell me a way I am uh, procrastinating. Tell me a way I am procrastinating. So an underlying faith, you might say, in the work yeah. is by looking at your suffering, your suffering will go away. And so you have to look at your suffering over and over and over and over again. And there's no way out when you're in the Ridwan school. So you're not allowed to like not look at your own sense of your own deficiency in order to discover that that deficiency might be a fraud. Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful reminder. Otherwise, like year four, five, six would seem really dreary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That is really great. So I, I grew up Jewish. And then the most sort of impactful spiritual orientation for me has been through the Buddhist teaching, which I encountered when I was 18. And 
uh, which was a long time ago. And so because of that, the languaging that I'm used to is not so much leaning toward the divine or God. The most acquaintance I've had in a, a deep way with those terms has been through Ramdas and, and that world of uh, so many of my close friends. And I think sometimes Ramdas would purposely use words like self, soul, God, divine, ever so more when I was around because he would like <laughs> to tease me, you know, like, oh, what are the Buddhists going to say about this? And yeah. I sometimes I tell the story about being in Hawaii with him and one of his main, main statements was see the divine in everyone, see the divine in everyone. And and then I left to go to the airport and had a really miserable encounter with a ticket agent because my flight had been canceled and she was really, really, really difficult. And then I kept making suggestions. Well, how about a flight through Denver? How about this flight? How about that flight? And she was getting angrier and angrier. And, and finally, because my initial flight had been canceled because of weather, she looked at me and she said, what do I look like? God? It's weather. And I thought, oh, right. I see the divine in everyone. I totally forgotten. You know, I was just really annoyed. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about those words. And I could hear from each of you about God, about the divine. And what does that mean in life? Well, I'll go first. Being a Sunday school teacher, this comes up pretty routinely in my life. And I really do not have a single interesting theological thought or understanding. I have a kind of a Casper the Friendly Ghost relationship with Jesus, who I'm just crazy about as a big brother and as a mother. And um, But if I had to describe how I experience God and how I see him and her and it, the great it, everywhere, I would say it's the... Uh, the love energy that surrounds us, that creates, that indwells us, that is us, that is the only thing there is in the sort of Einstein sense that there's only this one thing and it's all going at different speeds, you know, so that I'm going at a pretty fast speed and a, a meteor is going even faster and the table's going very, very slowly, but there's only the one thing, which is energy. And so God for me is the the love energy of that I can breathe in, that in the Christian tradition, the third part of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, which is spiritus, which is breath. And in the, my recovery program, the 12 steps that require some kind of surrender to a power greater than oneself, there are some great acronyms, which are, first of all, the group of drunks is helpful in your first month or so, because they are really seeming to be there for you in, in a very loving and very profound, uh, selfless way. And then there's also good orderly direction, which I think is more of your booty people, <laughs> you and Jack Arnfield's booty, booty lives. And, um, but Jack considers me his go-to Jesus girl, which I like. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there's grace over drama. You know, instead, instead of the reactivity that is so natural, like with you and the ticket agent, that there's just that moment of grace, you know, that surprise moment when you're semi-okay instead of reactive, and the choice to choose grace over drama, grace being spiritual WD-40. And then there's a great outdoors, which also spells God. So where I experience God most... Um, deeply and profoundly and 
from the time I was a baby girl is in the great outdoors and in the, you know, the Blake or the Gerard Manley Hopkins way that the world is aflame with the divine. And he says like shook foil, you know, like tin foil that shimmers with in everything we see once we step outside and remember to look and to see and to pay attention and to breathe it all in. So, but, you know, I have a very, very simplistic sense of God. I just talk to Jesus, listen for him, thank him, and try to be Jesus with skin on with everybody I meet on any, every given day. Mm. Thank you. Really. And Neil? You know, when I listen to Annie talk about God, it's amazing to watch God, who I learned as kind of a, a metaphysical other that had perfection to it, be thoroughly replaced by uh, love and care and interest and concern and things like that that come out of Annie's words. And those kind of words bring that sensation of God into me, of God is love, of God is Jesus's love, those sorts of things. I was a dyed-in-the-wool steadfast atheist from 14 to my early 50s. And when I entered God, I had the luck of having zero trust that anything that I had read about God made any sense to me whatsoever. I encountered God in a very abrupt way. A friend dragged me to sit with a modern spiritual master, former kind of a elapsed Zen guy, uh, Adyashanti, mm -hmm. who if you know Adyashanti and have spent time around his community, you realize that he's a fire starter. He introduces people to the possibility that they could awaken to something different, to a different reality, I suppose. And I'm sitting with him, not knowing anything about it. I had never the last time I had meditated, I believe, was 35 years ago when Allen Ginsberg visited our college and we all did OM. And still nothing came through from that. And, and so I'm sitting and I'm closing my eyes in a room full of two or 300 people. It was actually at Spirit Rock in um, Marin County. And I'm closing my eyes. It's a very weird experience to meditate for the first time or the first time as an adult or whatever. And be in a room that's suddenly quiet with everybody's eyes closed. And suddenly I had this experience while I was in this first meditation that Adya, who's sitting up in the front on a chair, elevated a little above us and looks very serene. And I've got my eyes closed. And I suddenly felt him telepathically pull this gray dragon breath, I thought it was, out of me, investigate it, and then return it to me. And it was a miracle, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was weird. I walked out of the room after the meditation thinking to myself, that happened. That was real. I don't care even what the symbolism of my soul being looked at or being cloudy and confused with dragon breath. I didn't care about what it meant whatsoever. All I knew was... This whole thing that I thought was crazy talk that was supernatural suddenly was real and possible. And I realized, oh, 
maybe I should investigate this mm. um, because it felt completely real. It was an, a, just a singular miracle. I had, for the next few years, I had visions and these kind of symbolic experiences happened to me and then they didn't need to after a while. And so that whole kind of supernatural metaphysics where the conditions are so crazily different that it's almost unimaginable that it's real, you know, that was never very important to me that that was possible, except insofar as it opened a whole new place for myself to turn my attention to in terms of the me in me who was a truth seeker and who had always been there. And then I discovered that all of the pattern recognition skills and logic skills that I had attained through uh, my atheistic life, just looking at the patterns of regular old life, had the exact same usefulness in spiritual work. And so I just found, oh, I have a new place to apply my thinking skills. And so the first encounter with God was as a miracle, which is kind of lucky, I suppose. <laughs> but you know, I, don't, I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but you, you use the phrase, I entered God rather than God entered me. Yeah. And it actually feels different. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure why. I have to think about that or feel it. No, I, I think that's absolutely true because I do feel that when my defenses get out of the way, what's left is what some people call God. The big problem with the word God with a capital G for me is that it usually looks austere, separate. God with a capital G has perfection as a cranky quality that keeps me slightly at bay. Whereas words like consciousness or the divine, even the divine has a little bit too much perfection for me to use I use it a lot because it's, I'm, I want people to notice that what they have been told is ineffable isn't ineffable, that it's actually much more an experience than a conception or a metaphysical reality even. And that if I'm allowed to change the conditions of my life from this kind of empiricism that says material is material, if I'm allowed to change those conditions... That's what most people call God, right? Is that changed mm -hmm. condition from being attached to things as things to noticing that there's an indeterminacy to the world. That I can call God indeterminacy. I can call God at this moment strength if that's how I'm experiencing the world. I tend to experience uh, my base level self moving through the world as a kind of dynamic indeterminacy that extends out beyond my skin and that is then shared in and out. And so God becomes more of a field to me that changes as the world changes mm -hmm. around me. And it may have some consistent feelings for a while, but usually that God world is teaching something relatively specific to me for a period of time. And then I'm saturated with that, and then that ends, and I have to shed it in order to be free to the next thing to happen. Mm. So while there's, there's both dependent arising as moment to moment and moment to moment, there's also different time systems for the divine world or whatever that it, it'll teach me something that takes longer, and I'll be in that field for a while. 
But that field is light and it's never believable that it requires perfection or requires a classic definition of divinity. So field is good. If I'm a location looking out at the world, it looks awesome and truthful. And if I'm an embodied self looking, relating to things and people in the world, it feels like seamless movement and love. Mm. So as a functioning being, I'm in love. As an observing being, I'm in truth, kind of. I also really appreciate the fact that those are not hierarchical. You know, when you first said observing and then participating, I thought, well, it's participating better, you know, than, than observing. <laughs> and uh, that's not where you went. So. Well, I mean, it's interesting because usually I toggle, right, from one to the other, mm-hmm. one to the other. You know, I have part of my day where I'm relating to people and part of my day where I'm just walking in the woods, right, where I'm also relating to things. But there are also times in my life and in the day when I'm able to do a little more than just, you know, there, there are these various forms of non-dualism. And the most basic form of non-dualism is I've got free will in one hand and determinism in the other, and I can hold them both. But if I'm holding them in separate hands, I'm still going to be kind of toggling from one to the other. But there are forms of non-dualism where, and anybody can experience this if they try to, all you have to do is cup one hand inside the other and tell me exactly where one hand ends and the other one begins. And so that's a different kind of non-dualism, and it's the kind of non-dualism where I can have love and truth going at the same time. Hmm. That's wonderful. And Annie, you and I were writing books about faith at around the same time, and I remember uh, sitting behind you, we hadn't ever met, at Spirit Rock, it was Rick Fields Memorial Service, and somebody on the stage said something amazing about faith, and I kept thinking, I have to remember that, I have to remember it, I have to remember that. And I saw you in front of me, like, rummage through your bag and pull out (laughs) a checkbook, it looked like, and write something down on the back, I think what had just been said on the stage. And I thought, that's why she's such a great writer. <laughs> you know, I have no idea what was said. I couldn't remember it for like 10 seconds, I'm sure. Um, but it was I can't of- either. I write everything down that is profound and that will, that, you know, I think we're just all uh, looking for and finding these tiny mosaic chips or shards of truth like tikkun mm-hmm. in the Jewish tradition. And, you know, when you hear it, it doesn't matter what, school it comes from, what path it's on, you just grok that you, something, it's like the little Dr. Seuss of your soul perks his ears or her ears. And and I get it down because I'm like you, I don't remember 10 seconds later. So yeah, that's always my best advice to writing students is if you hear it, whether you're in the express line or at a Vedanta retreat, write it down. You know, when we're little kids, grownups always said really hostily, if it's important, you'll remember it. And it wasn't true when I was seven, and it's not true at 67. So, but that's it's especially funny. not true. And especially, yeah. And I mean, I have checkbook cardboard of, from 40 years ago with wow. things I, I scribble down, or that I'm in church and I hear something, I scribble it down, or I'm walking with Jack Cornfield with my dog, and I, he says something, and I scribble it down. And then I say, Can I have that? <laughs> 
You know, it's funny. You mentioned church. Annie um, introduced me to back to going to church. I, uh-huh. as an atheist who resented religion, I actually thought the church was the devil for years, and so I started going to church occasionally with with Annie, and I, and I discovered that certain pastors were mystical and brilliant and could take me places that some of the kind of new age spiritual masters couldn't even get Mm -hmm. close to. Mm -hmm. And boy, if you want to be in a world of exploration of love, go listen to a good pastor because they really have explored it and they really are comfortable with it and attuned to it and sitting in it. And it, it shocked me that there was so much, um, because the sermon was the the annoying part when I was a kid. Right? <laughs> it shocked me that there's hardly a pastor in in the non-judgmental church, the the kind of lower Protestant churches that pay a lot more attention to love than to hate. And I love going to church with Annie now. And I typically I'll get more out of it than a typical Dharma talk from from the other the other faiths are bent often slightly toward the truth side and slightly away. I'm Mm -hmm. being very overgeneralizing, and I apologize for that. And I think it's particularly important that, uh, that the truth side be exaggerated for a long while because you need that truth side in order to remove the defenses more than you need, actually, it turns out, more than you need the left side. The left side, you know, Hamid noticed something, and I don't know if this is true in all the traditions, but he noticed that if you first work on your head center and then move down and work on your body center, once your head center and your body center are fairly clear and open, you don't have to do a damn thing. Your heart center all on its own opens mm-hmm. itself. You, know, you don't actually have to do heart work as much as you have to do head work and body work. Amazing. Well, I think Annie has introduced a lot of people to the possibility of a new meaning of faith, you know, and a different kind of experience in church. Because certainly when I was working on that book, Faith, there were a lot of people in in my world who were kind of aghast, you know, like, why? Why are you doing that? And so many people have had some kind of bad experience in religious contexts, you know, being silenced or not being able to ask questions that one of the things I thought and said at the time was that one of my goals really was to try to redeem the word, which I think, Annie, you've done more than many, many, many people. Oh, thank you. I love that you said that, Sharon. But yeah, you know, I was raised by atheists. And so I really got to come to my own experiential understanding of goodness, which is the best synonym for God goodness with a capital G. But I'm a thief and a parrot, you know, I've just found little bits of truth everywhere. Like I remember being 14 or so and reading Salinger's great collection, Nine Stories. And the very last story is is called Teddy, about a little boy in New York with gigantic baggy shorts and an incredibly annoying baby sister. And he has is returning on a cruise on a ship from being studied by these great Swedish doctors because he's got some sort of mystical and and, uh, quantifiable uh, relationship with the ineffable and the the eternal 
And he's just this funny little boy named Teddy. And there's a very annoying interviewer, I think from the New York Times, <laughs> probably, who was asking him where it all began for him when he first understood what was true, that there's really this one thing and it's love. It's love energy. And he said, I was watching my mom give my baby sister a glass of milk one day in her high chair. And he said, and I realized that it was God pouring God into God. Mm. And I think I was changed forever, although it took me a long time to agree to anything Jesus-y at all. But what I've learned since is that in the triune nature of the Christian sense of God, there's the Father who is the, the lover. and But in our church, we would say the Father, Mother, God. And, and there's the Son who is the Beloved, who is all of us. And there's the Holy Spirit that animates the all of everything, every molecule and every star that is the love between the Lover, Creator, and the Beloved. But I, when I hear that and when I think on that, I always picture Teddy saying, I realized it was God pouring God into God. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you one really quick Sunday school story, and then mm -hmm. I have to go, but I'll leave you in God and Neil's good hands. But um, <laughs> we tell our Sunday school this. There's a little girl really struggling to fall asleep, really, really afraid and anxious, which is me. And um, she keeps calling out for her mom to come into her bedroom in the dark. And the mom keeps coming in. And the first few times, she's very patient. Oh, you're okay. Jesus is right here with you on the bed. You're fine. Just close your eyes and, and go to sleep now. And by about the fourth time, the mother's getting impatient and exhausted. And she says a little harshly, Jesus is right here with you on the bed in the room. And you don't have to be afraid of anything. And you can just drift off. And the little girl says plaintively, I need someone with skin on. <laughs> so my understanding is that really simple. All I know of God is Jesus and Mary, who I adore. I don't see how you can't. And that the message is to me on a daily basis, get thirsty people water, teach little kids how to swim and be God with skin on. And um, for everyone I meet, whether it's a brand new sober person or whether it's a very, very aged and lonely person in line at Whole Foods to whom, you know, everyone's avoiding because he or she may pull coupons out of their bag in the express line. And I can be God with skin on and sit there patiently and smile and, and compliment them on what a really great hat they have. So I keep it very simple. And I love you, Sharon. I love you, Lily. And thank you for having me here um, with Neil today. And, and um, I'll see you soon, I hope. Yes, I hope so. Love to you. I'm wondering if you can say something, Neil, just briefly about whatever daily practice you might have, and then maybe lead us in a practice if that feels good to you. My main daily practice, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a formal meditator anymore. I did, and I, and I recognize that it, it is a lifelong practice, and even a, a, a basic concentration meditation is always a value. 
And Annie and I will occasionally, we have this lovely tape, Gil Franzel uh, meditation that, hey, let's do Gil. And we sit up in bed and do Gil for the, in that morning. And we love doing that. I do twice a day, typically, long walks. And I find that the long walks, a long walk for me, even a 10-minute walk will give me about 80% of all the truth, beauty, and love in the world, right? And I will be saturated in it. And my daydreaming mind will take me into what we were talking about as God every single time. But uh, let's do this meditation. Um, Okay, great. Typically, let's just start, close your eyes or keep them open in soft eyes if you wish. And I always think that it's important, even if I don't do it and I'm sitting in bed, but if I'm in a chair, to plant my feet slightly apart and flat on the floor. That raises my spine. So raise your spine, plant your feet, close your eyes, a couple of deep breaths. And then I want you to think your way into your torso. And all you care about as you do this is the physical characteristics that you're seeing and sensing in your torso. And when I use the word feel about things, I don't mean emotions. I mean sensory feelings. So maybe you've got sounds, maybe you've got scents or smells, and maybe you've got taste. But mostly you'll have a sense of physical touch through an energetic feeling and a sense of visualization. I want you to go into your torso and look at the back of your torso and see if you can see the back of your torso as a very, very dark uh, plane. So you're looking at the back of your torso and you're seeing a black or a charcoal uh, back to it. And just keep looking at this black plane at the back of your torso and see whether as you look into it, whether it'll start to Uh, create a sense of void rather than a sense of surface. Because black can be seen into in a way that any color can, but black can really be seen into. So look into the black. And now see if the little you that is down there looking in there can enter into that black back of your torso and kind of look around and see where it goes. Where does this black back of your torso go? If you see a black plane, that's fine. Just explore the black plane. If you just see the guts inside your torso, that's fine. Explore the torso. Explore the red parts of you if you're, that's what you're seeing in there. If you're in the black plane and moving into it, see where it ends. See how far you can swim or float or or guide yourself through or walk. Maybe there's a floor. If there's a floor, walk on the floor and keep walking through the black opening in the back of your torso. Where does it go? Does it end? Is there any light in there? If there's light, is it coming from the outside or is it self-illuminated or is it pitch black? It's going to be different for each of you. 
You're in your torso, but maybe you're moving out of your torso. Just go in there, spend some time there. That's it. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. That's basically what the practice is in Shapes of Truth. It's guided in a slightly different, more directive way, but it's very open-ended and up to where the person is. I think that it's, it's often lost on me and other people that exactly where you are is exactly where you're supposed to be. And no matter how rudimentary you feel it is, how disappointing it might be, it is soaked and pervaded with the same amount of truth, love, divinity, God, whatever, and is just as interesting as anything else. You know? mm, that's <laughs> uplifting. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, to learn more about Neil's work, you can visit his website at www.shapesoftruth.com. It's S-H-A-P-E-S. O-F-T-R-U-T-H dot com. And to learn more about Annie Lamott, you can follow her on social media at Anne Lamott, A-N-N-E-L-A-M-O-T-T. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.